Welcome to the Resourceful HDR podcast. Today I'm speaking to Agnes Bosenkett. And Agnes is a very interesting person. I thought she had to be my first guest. So um, we're just going to be talking about a whole range of things today and hopefully of interest to our audience. So, Agnes, thanks for doing this with me. I guess the first thing I wanted to talk to you about was obviously you've done a PhD. So I was wondering if you would talk about your own PhD experience. So I finished my PhD, uh, where are we, what year is it, um, nearly <laughs> uh, eight years ago, and I took a very long time to do my PhD. I was a part-time candidate. I worked uh, four days a week during throughout my PhD, and I had a baby in the middle who was very ill, so I ended up taking one and a half years leave of absence. So between starting my PhD, I should say that was an unapproved leave of absence because I didn't get official permission to take that because I was um, deemed too close to submission. But my daughter was very ill. I took a year and a half off to work on her health and support her and care for her. And then I came back to the PhD. I So all up, it took me uh, eight and a half years between starting. I rarely say that out loud because it's kind of one of those... Um, things you feel shame about Um, but it took me that length of time and that included a year and a half where I was away and I went through three supervisors during the PhD and I ended up with a wonderful supervisor Nick Mansfield who is uh, still here at Macquarie the Dean of High Degree Research and I submit I finished my PhD when my daughter was two and I graduated when she was three So it felt like a time I thought I'd done absolutely nothing in that whole period of leave, but it had been ticking along in the background. And I often think that that fallow period is what actually made my PhD the thing it was. So what do you think you learnt then? If you're talking about the fallow period, I can imagine that that means, for me, I'm really interested in creativity and so therefore that capacity to take time out walk away from something for a while let it sort of bubble around in the back of your head to the point where you you get those almost eureka moments or it it just somehow makes more sense do you feel that sort of happened for you absolutely i mean it was kind of like i needed to get a life to understand the critical theory that i was working on in my phd and the experience of having a sick baby was what allowed me to test the weight of the feminist philosophy I was working with, you know, um, beautiful writing, what's it like to live with this writing and live with the experience of caring for a sick baby who's in and out of hospital. And all of those shifts of subjectivity you get in becoming a mother and um, struggling in a relationship with a partner and caring for a baby who's absolutely dependent on you and trying to hold it together at work and think about this damn PhD you're meant to be doing um, so the, that sort of experience was what made, for me, it, the feminist philosophy fell short. Um, so my PhD really became a sort of a story of a loss of, um, of sort of falling in love with feminist theory and living and breathing it and having this really, I guess, textual love affair with it. And then having this life experience where it no longer felt it was speaking to me. 
So the PhD kind of became tracing that experience. I wrote my experience into the PhD, which I remember Nick saying made him feel very nervous as he was reading it. But I had to include that autoethnographic work because that's what allowed me to um, make sense of the theory. So in a way, you'd recommend people have some <laughs> difficult experiences because it makes it for it a richer experience. Obviously, we wouldn't wish that on anyone, but, but there is value in that. And I guess that's something, because we've chatted quite a bit since uh, I've been in this role, and I really appreciate, yeah, that, that honesty that you give and the really authentic view of what it's like. And so I think that's really important. Again, I want mm -hmm. current HDRs and people early career researchers, anyone in their career to sort of go, I can stop and think about these things and it's okay. And, and failure is not a bad thing as long as it's always, what have I learned from it and how can I grow? You don't think that at the time, obviously. And I imagine you didn't. So I guess I'm going to lead from there to sort of talk about um, how... What, what actually career means to you, what you might have thought it was and how that shifted along the way. Yeah, that's a surprisingly complex question, what does career mean to you? Because I think it's so tied up with your identity, your sense of who you are and your, your feeling of, of what your purpose and your contribution is and why you're doing something. It's far more than just a job. I've had plenty of jobs in my time um, that, you know, pay the rent and allow you to think about higher things. And they've been good. I had one job where I ironed a lot and I read a book while I did it most of the time. So that sense of, you know, I remember um, the feeling of coming to university. So as an honours student, I went into the PhD straight from honours and I was still a bit undergraduate in my thinking, which is why I think I needed the ex some tough experience to grow up a bit. Um, but I remember coming to university and feeling like I'd found a place that allowed me to do the sort of work I wanted to do. And what I enjoy doing is reading and writing and listening and speaking. And it seemed to me a, uh, the sort of work that combined those things. So post P so during my PhD, I did casual lecturing and tutoring. And I worked um, casually as a lecturer and tutor for 10 years. Um, and I also took on some professional staff work doing teaching development and um, project management and various sorts of things like that. Things that taught me alongside my PhD that were really good experience in teaching and um, working with staff and organizing projects. And they built my skills in those areas. I also wrote quite a lot of technical type reports and they were very good for um, training my writing in particular ways and thinking about that. So all of the work was complementary, and I did that because I was a part-time candidate. There were no scholarships available and I worked um, three to four days a week during that time. So uh, let me go back to the question. Yeah, so what does, I guess, what's career what does mean? career mean? And how's that shifted, I guess, over that mm. time? So, one of the really important things for around career with me was finding a way to do the things I enjoy um, and hopefully being rewarded and recognised for that sort of work. The thing I found in a whole... I've had lots and lots of jobs at this university and other university in professional staff roles, casual roles, contract roles, teaching-focused roles, um, project management roles, a whole variety of things... And the thing that has worked best for me is when I have found 
people and places where I feel um, aligned to the values of that, where there's a focus on collegiality and scholarship and, um, and, and valuing the contributions of people. I've, I've been privileged to work with some really good people and work in places that are um, very supportive and offer a lot of mentoring. So it's been, I've also worked in places that haven't been so good, that have been a bit toxic and a bit destructive. And you get a sense of what, where you fit and what works well and what you enjoy. So, you know, you've talked about the challenges, you know, of having your daughter and, and her illness along the way and, and trying to finish a PhD and, and managing it despite all odds seemingly against you. So what other challenges have you had since that time, I guess? Oh, well, that's a difficult question. <laughs> um, okay, so I've been part-time my entire academic career. So my first academic position that was a um, contract academic role was post-PhD. And I changed discipline for job reasons. So my PhD, as I said, was in critical theory. There was no work in that field. I'd already been teaching casually for a long time. And the opportunity came up to um, move into higher education as a discipline um, and through some work in the learning and teaching center. And I took that. And I'd been working on a casual basis in that area um, and a contract basis in that area during the PhD. I then realized I probably should get a qualification in the field I was then actually teaching in. So I went back and did a master's in higher education. And at that time, I was both teaching in the course and studying the course, not the same units, obviously, but I would do other people's units and I was a student alongside some of my own <laughs> students. So it was a, yeah, it was pretty bizarre. Um, but it was very, it was a really good insight into that practice of being a student and seeing what they experience and the challenges of doing that sort of coursework because it had been a long time since I'd done coursework study and realizing how strategic you become about doing, you know, okay, what are the learning outcomes? What are the, um, you know, criteria for this assessment task? What's, you know, what do I have to do for this? But I also wanted to do it well. I really liked the material. It was like it had taken me that many degrees to work out actually what I enjoyed studying and how to study, I think. And I wanted to do well. And I also didn't want to be teaching in the course and do poorly. So it was very great incentive to work hard. And I did better in that than any other study I've done. So I really enjoyed that. And it's one of the, um, I remember most of my work from there and I still use that in my, in my daily work. So one of the challenges was going back to study um, because I'd got a job in a different field. Uh, another challenge was working part-time and I'm still part-time now. Um, I went and I had another baby, a son, and um, he's starting school next year. So part-time work is challenging because you make choices about how much you're going to work and what you're going to focus on. And um, you don't, um, you don't achieve as much as other people. You achieve differently, maybe I should say. And I also, you know, like many people, there's the ups and downs of life and health problems and, you know, um, um, family members' health problems. And it's just alongside an academic career, you get a life <laughs> with all of the things that come with that. So, and um, one, of, one of the big things and something I've written about on my blog is my daughter being very ill last year and missing more than two terms of school and having to try and make 
academic life work with um, a child who's unable to attend any school or childcare. Um, well, we just did a lot of things together. You probably, I think we had yeah, a meeting yeah, when she did. came along yeah, as well. Yeah. yeah. So she walked all around the university with me. We spent a lot of time at work together and, um, you know, there were, there were good things that came of that and the immense privilege of this sort of work as an academic and having reached a position senior enough where I didn't really have to ask permission to do that. It was like, well, if you want me to be at work, I have to bring my daughter. And that's, something that is not it was far easier this time so this was um you know 11 years down the track than when she was a baby and I was a casual and I used to leave her in hospital with my parents and come and lecture blah, 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 like that and then I would rush back to the hospital not even remembering what the lecture topic was or what I'd said um it was far easier this time so those are some of the challenges and I think everyone has their specific challenges each each person's challenges are distinct but what all they do is intensify the challenges of the sort of academic work we do every anyway everyone has their sort of individual intensifiers it might be their mental health their physical health caring for others um, you know relationship difficulties whatever it is at some point you're going to be hit with something that just makes what you're doing harder and that's life and I think what we want to do is try and create a system where we support people to have complex lives and be looked after during PhD and during academic careers. So you do have your blog, which I read, and I think I organised to have coffee with you after I read the one that you wrote about when your daughter was sick, and I must recommend it to everybody. Um, Agnes is a beautiful writer, and she um, covers some really interesting topics, and it's the slow academic. Uh, so... Can you talk about the blog, about why you started it, how you actually managed to keep writing it and, and you know, what are the things that inspire you that, that really fill up your blog, I suppose? Look, I, I really enjoy having a blog. It feels wonderfully indulgent to be able to write about, to decide what I write about. You know, so I'm not writing for an academic publication and you know you slave over your your paper and you you put in some sentences you just absolutely have fallen in love with you like oh this beautiful sentence then the reviewer comes back and says you know that bit didn't make any sense and you just have to delete it and you're like okay there was my sentence that I fell in love with it's just gone no one understood what it meant you know how you do you have yeah, those sentences yeah, you put in and those <laughs> phrases that you really like and then you realize no one knows what they mean um and the blog is wonderful because there's no one there saying to you, remove that sentence or you can't talk about the porridge you've had for breakfast or, you know, why are you, why are you writing about the books you've read this weekend or why are you taking photos of the trees you walked past? You know, you can just weave it all into this is what it looks like. So part of the impetus for that blog was having gone through a change management process in the university and watching a lot of very valued colleagues who'd nurtured me a great deal and had made me the academic I was lose their jobs. And I managed to get another job in the university, but I, I wanted a bit more space for reflection. You know, that was a very difficult time to go through. It was a very emotional time. And it was in, in fact, one of the most difficult work experiences I've had. And I wanted to have some time to stop and reflect and to think about uh, higher education in a scholarly way. And so the, uh, the blog came about because I read a lot of blogs 
and I was looking, oh, I wonder what people have said about slow academia. I read The Slow Professor and I was thinking about these ideas and I found no one had a blog called The Slow Academic. There were blog posts in The Thesis Whisperer and in um, Research Whisperer. Whisperer. All sorts of places had um, posts about slow academia, but um, it wasn't, you know, there wasn't an ongoing discussion in one place. So I thought, you know, I'll, I'll call myself the slow academic. And um, colleagues do say, you know, you're not really a slow academic, right? I said, well, you know, it can be aspirational. <laughs> this is what I'd like to be. And it's a, it's a way of um, resisting being um, constrained um, by, you know, a profile that focuses on your research output and your um, H index or any other measures of your citations and a very narrow image of what it means to be an academic. So I'm allowed to be a full person. I'm allowed to actually have a life outside the university and I'm allowed to think about things that are relevant to academic work without, uh, but to be able to do it in in a way I want and in a way that I feel makes me feel enriched as a person. It was also a way to, so it was, it was a type of resistance to, um, and it was also, um, I guess, a way of cautioning myself not to compare myself and where I am with others and where I think I should be. You know, I'd bump into a colleague in the car park and it'd be like, oh, I've done this, I've done that, I've done that. And I'd go away thinking, oh, dear. I'm so, you know, deficient as a human being. And it was just after a conversation in the car park. So this was also a way, some people do their fa- their failure walls and their CV of failures and these sorts of things. I didn't want to dwell on failure anymore. You know, I wanted to, I wanted space that was, it was okay to be slow. You didn't need to compare with others. You know, rejection would hurt, but it would be part of a bigger thing. So this was what, um, um, Nikki Harrow, Barbara Grant and Sean Sturm and co talk about as the infinite game in higher education. So you're not playing something short term, you're looking at a whole life. Definitely. Yes, I think, you know, having worked in higher education in professional roles for many, many years, um, you know, I'll often say you, you need to have patience, you know, if um, and you have to be really determined, I think, to sort of say, I can see this is a really good thing and this will benefit whoever I'm trying to benefit, whether it's students, staff, whatever. But how will I do it? What what are the steps I can take so that it, it will fulfil the the sort of end game in a way? But I know that it will... You're chipping away each time, I think. And, and I think, you know, just knowing that is a really helpful thing, that it, it's just going to take you a long time. It is a long game. And, you know, I think you're a testament to that too of uh, when, you know, you might talk to someone who's finishing a PhD and they go, oh, but how will I do this? And it's almost that thing of expecting to walk straight into the academic position with this ongoing position. And and I think this is a decision people have to make is for any career, if it's something that's highly competitive, which it is in, in the academic world, then you have to say, well, how will I get there? And what's another way? And maybe I'll take a sideways step. Maybe I'll take a professional role. Maybe I'll take a, a contract position here and one here and I'll cobble it together. And, and then you have to make a decision at a certain point 
as you've done, what is this meeting my needs and trying to be strategic. I guess that's one other thing I'm interested in, and um, we have had a chat about that, is about being aware of what is happening in the environment and seeing things, the changes that are about to happen before they happen so that you can be strategic and be prepared and then that that is to me what career development or management is it's about being continuing to understand what's going on sort of always being alert and aware in a you know positive way not in a stressed way but to sort of have your radar up and then then take action because I've seen so many people having worked in HR in higher ed as you've said I've seen the redundancies and and people just seem like it took them from left field yet everyone else could see it was happening and they were just in denial so I guess you know I wouldn't mind you talking about that. Look I think first of all it's important to say that higher education is changing very rapidly the workforce looks different now than when I got my first academic job even though it was only eight years ago which sounds fairly recent but in terms of um, what that looks like for people now things are even more competitive and there may be less room to negotiate, you know, um, what you want and how you get there. So I'm thinking about uh, my PhD candidates now and how I advise them. And I always, uh, the first thing with any meeting with a PhD candidate is I ask them why they're doing a PhD. And we have some long detailed conversation about why they're doing it and what they think it will offer them. Because I learnt from not really thinking that through myself. I was, I was not very... Um, canny um, about why I was doing it or what I thought it would what it would give me uh, I think it's useful to have to think that stuff through in advance I always ask my candidates to have a plan B so if their plan is to have an academic career I ask them to think about plan B and I'm thinking about a candidate of mine who recently com completed and is in an academic role now but went through some professional staff roles before that and you can get to a point where you think, you know, am I trying to do something that's not achievable? And I think you need to um, think for yourself, give yourself some time limits. You know, how long do I want to be working casually? So for me, being a casual, 10 years was long enough. I mean, I, if I had tried to stay within the same discipline, I may have had another five or 10 years. Um, the other advice I was given was, well, if you want to stay in that discipline, you need to change universities and you need to go overseas. But, you know, as I said, I had the sick baby. That wasn't really going to happen. So I found ways to um, um, make myself um, competitive for roles that were, you know, still within my own institution. And I wasn't too picky. I was I went for professional staff roles and academic roles and I also got to know particular people and I let them know what I was interested in and I said you know if something like this comes up and I've never really been good at that you know I always thought you know if I just didn't say anything people might notice hey she's quite good let's give her a job um once I felt that I had to I think there was something quite freeing about having to advocate for my daughter's health and you know um I then, I then thought, well, you know, I'm not just, when I'm thinking about career and getting a right job for me here that's convenient for her and close to hospitals and close to family support, I'm not just saying, hey, give me a job because I'm good. I'm saying, I need a job. I need to look after my daughter. And, you know, I'm, I'm a good candidate. You know, I'm, I'm as good as anyone else. And it was much more liberating way of thinking, you know, rather than worrying about being an imposter or not being good enough, I thought, 
I'm as good as anyone else you might get. Mm. Um, and that was quite freeing. So I do think about how things have changed in higher education and the complexity now and the greater number of PhD candidates and the fewer jobs and the increase in casualization because the chances are if PhD candidates do want an academic role that they will be looking at a period of casual work. And that insecure work is financially difficult, it's emotionally difficult, it's very difficult in terms of career building because you may be paid for teaching but not for research. And it's something that impacts all the people around you as well. So um, it's very tough. Professional staff positions are one way of navigating that, but a lot of people I know work outside of academia for a while and keep in some casual teaching at the same time. Um, people just have to have that sort of plan B and work out where is a place that they feel, feel nourishes them. And if you don't feel, if you're with really good people and you're enjoying the work, being casual can be something that you can take. You know, you can go, okay, this is working for me right now. I feel supported by these people around me. Even though there's no guarantees I've got work next semester, I know these people have my back and know and want to give me work. When you're in something that's, um, you know, say a private higher education provider where, or you're in something where there is no feeling that people have your back, then it can be a very dangerous place to work and very um, um, toxic. Yeah, yeah. And, and it can feel worse. So a lot of it for me is around what are my relationships like with the people and how well do I feel we work together? How, how valued do I feel here? And those are the sorts of questions that I would be asking myself about any place or space I'm working in and the people I'm working in. Because those things, whether or not you know what's coming next, you've got to find a space that will allow you to sit with that uncertainty in a way that's not damaging. That's very good advice because, you know, this is um, complexity theory is very, um, you know, I guess part of many of the career theories that are current and that is the thing that if people can sit with uncertainty but be strategic at the same time. So it sort of sounds paradoxical but it's not really. So it's, it's taking charge of yourself as much as you can, being aware of your environment and then, you know, building on what you, you've gained. You, you spoke earlier about all the different roles you've had and what you gained from each one. So it was like you, you actually understood that from each of those you were gaining something. So again, I think your advice you just gave was really good. And to add to that, I would say that it's really important to notice what you're doing while you're doing it and, and actually documenting it if you can and writing some stories about it so you've got that to reflect upon for yourself so that you can say, yeah, I really enjoyed that. And also to sort of use it for future, but also maybe to say, actually, I didn't enjoy that. So what are the bits I'm looking for? So you, you're sort of really putting it together as a jigsaw puzzle. There's an excellent resource called Imagine PhD that's oh, yes. a website. And I think I'm that's... I'm actually. Right. I really like that site. I think I find it really useful for thinking about what are your values? What is the work you enjoy doing? What are your core skills? And it does take it beyond academia. So it looks at what possibilities there might be for work outside academia. Um, and I think it's a really useful site because it gets you thinking in that way about career development. You know, um, what have I actually gained from these things? I think too often we can feel we've sort of painted ourselves into a corner. You know, you, you've ended up with a PhD 
and um, you're able to articulate that stuff, you know, what you're, what's required for academia very well, but um, you don't know where you might fit elsewhere. And I actually, as part of the process of um, going through change management, I went and spoke to an academic coach who, you know, looked at my CV and helped and helped me find ways to think about possibilities. You know, I was thinking, you know, this is terrible. I, I'm incapable of doing anything but being an academic now. You know, why have I done this to myself? Um, <laughs> and it's also a very emotional time, so you're not thinking clearly. And she was able to say, you know, stop, hold on. Don't present your CV like these are your publications because no one outside of academia cares. You know, think about the skills you've got. And she said, when you think about it, you've actually got some really good skills. And she, she advised me to start looking at some job, start just reading the job ads. And is there anything I thought sounded, hey, that's kind of interesting and start looking for what skills they're asking for. So it doesn't matter, you know, at that point, you're not even applying for things. You're just looking, what are the sorts of things I think, yes, I could do that work. How and how do I evidence it? And how do I sell myself in that sort of um in that sort of role. So it's really having an eye to alternatives out there. And there is work available. There are things you can do. It, I think when you're in the mode of job hunting and getting rejections, it's very crushing. And you do feel quite diminished. You know, you do feel, okay, you're right. I'm, you know, I'm not capable of any of this. And, you know, that sort of starts to reflect then in the way in which you think about yourself and the way you talk and the way you write applications. Um, so I think if you get someone like a careers coach or a friend who's, or a mentor who can help talk you through this. My father-in-law, in fact, was actually really helpful for me in talking through. You know, I was, I was, you know, talking about some jobs I might do and he said, well, you know, what would make the difference? Why would you take one over the other? And I realized what I was really looking for and it was just a way of cutting through, you know, because no one wants to hear you go through in agonizing detail. Oh, I could do this or I could do this. People aren't very interested, <laughs> but you do need that sort of thinking and someone who can just say, who can just cut through all of that. Maybe I'll do this at plan A, plan B, plan C. And you still, you know, you could keep talking until you've got to Z. Someone who can just say, what is it that you're looking for? What would make the difference and make you take that job? And for me, that was a point to start negotiating. It was working out what was non-negotiable to me. For me, that was being part-time. Um, so I went, okay. And people many times have said to me, you can't say that, you can't do that, you're not going to get a job like that. I put in all my applications saying I'd been part-time. People said, don't do that, don't say you're part-time. And I thought, well, I have to. Otherwise, they'll look at me and go, huh, you haven't done very much, you know. <laughs> um, but I wanted to say I was part-time because it was something that I felt made it clear. I'd managed to do all of this stuff while part-time. But it also made it clear, you know, they might say, oh, you know, we've got two possible candidates for this role. Oh, we might have a couple of days a week work that someone might be interested in. And I actually got a job because because I didn't get the real job that I'd applied for, but they said, look, we have some additional work. If you're only looking for some short-term part-time work, you might be interested. And I'm like, whatever, I'll take it. <laughs> and it leads to other opportunities, you know. So sometimes it's about working out what's non-negotiable for you. And, and for me, the discipline wasn't the non-negotiable bit. For some people, it will be the discipline. Yeah. And so they will go overseas and they'll, you know, 
take up opportunities in that way. For me, I was like, okay, I'll throw the discipline away. Um, the bits that are non-negotiable are working part-time and staying in Sydney close to my family to get support. And when you say the discipline was negotiable, really, though, they fit together. So it's mm -hmm. not like you went off and did something completely different. You just sort of went, oh, well, where, where in this sort of... Um, along the line where would I fit that would actually still fulfill me and I think you're very clear on what fulfills you and and the values and, and understanding yourself there, there is a lot of people that just say, I'll take that job and it's okay to take a job as you say as long as you're looking at going I'll take this job because that will give me these skills and I have a gap there so I'll do this for a period but understanding that that it's time to leave when it's time to leave I think something we also don't realise, and I probably didn't realise so much until now, is that there's usually quite a bit of flexibility in jobs. And um, we take a job, and sometimes the people giving us the job aren't really clear what the job is or what's involved. And often in jobs around the university, you may be working on a particular project, but what you actually do and how you do that job is often quite open. So I've found within a lot of the jobs I've taken, there has been scope to find a way to make them a little bit of what I enjoy doing. You know, and sometimes it's only a very little bit, you know, so it was a professional staff job I took on where um, they were then saying, you know, we want to try and um, have a bit more scholarship around learning and teaching. So we set up a writing group and we had professional staff and academic staff and PhD candidates and it was open to anyone. And it made that a work thing. So even professional staff who didn't have it in their workload I mean, we made the meeting lunchtime on a Thursday, but could come. And it was then, you know, recognised that this is a work thing you're doing, even though it's not directly aligned to, you know, it was kind of like it fulfilled a higher purpose. So you could sort of bypass your line manager because it was doing something the organisation wanted. Yeah yeah, yeah. 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 And I think, you know, that's, we actually have a term for that in the, is uh, job crafting. So, you know, there is the capacity to do that to an extent obviously you can't turn a job into something completely different because it's not the job you want but but as you say you can do those things around the edges and sometimes that around the edges work you've done will actually be the bit that will help you get the next role and then start to do more work that is closer more closely aligned to your main interests and then you only have a percentage of the job that you don't like and everybody has those so is there anything else I guess you'd like to share today before we finish I think the only thing I want to share is a little um, uh, point about where I am now. So I think um, my role now is Associate Dean Curriculum Quality in the Faculty of Human Sciences, and I've been in this for six months. And one of the reasons I um, took on this role was the challenge. I mean, when I've done any of those things about what I appreciate with work and you know what I find, it's always, you know, I want something to be intellectually challenging. Um, so the challenge was the reason I took it on, but it was also um, a strategic reason I put it on where I thought there is work to do here and there is a role available. And it's also the sort of work that um, I can be anywhere and do it. So my daughter's doing a lot better now. So I am just at work by myself, which is incredible <laughs> and able to get a lot done. But it was also that, that sense that this is work I can do, you know, from a laptop in a hospital room or something like that. Um, I also wanted to show some people I mentor that it's possible to be a mother with 
young children, so children not yet at school in higher education and to progress um, in an academic career, even when that doesn't look quite what you imagined it would look like. So there are pathways, having been teaching focused, having changed discipline, having been part-time, um, there are academic pathways. And you might, you know, you might not be in your dream job, but you are getting experience and doing things. And um, probably my favorite thing about this role is it has given me a, a wider circle of influence and I talk to a lot more people and uh, it's, and we're thinking about complex issues. So one of the things that really drives me is trying to make universities a better place. I'm very interested in the politics of higher education and thinking about that stuff um, is quite different than actually having to work through that as part of your part of your job. Say, so, you know, a large curriculum renewal project that we've just been through. You know, the living experience of trying to um, implement complex policy in higher education is really useful for me as um, as a research interest as well, and as something that kind of um, can shape how I think about higher education. It's like uh, at each point along my career path, my um, view has widened a bit and I've had a greater understanding of the complexity of it. You know, what's quite interesting is so much happens in the university that I hadn't even been aware of and I'm constantly learning, um, you know, around the complexities of this place and meeting new people. And it's just a really nice way to think about organizations and um, to try and want to change things. Well, thank you, Agnes. Now, I think we could talk all day um, and it's been fantastic and I'm sure everybody will have learned a lot. And as I say, please go and read the Slow Academic blog. It's definitely worth it. And yeah, thank you again for your time today. I did realise you asked one thing about how I keep blogging and stuff and I didn't answer that. 